0: Um, we are a church. Ben, you can uh, you guys can head out. Yeah, you could have snuck out when I was praying, but if you wanna stay up there now, <laughs> hey, can we give the band a round of applause? That's a good segue. Actually, while uh, they are exiting the stage, I want to encourage two things in you. Uh, the first one is that if you saw these Easter invite cards, uh, grab these on your way out. Invite your friends. It has the information for the church as well. As April 21st on Easter, we are planning an exciting service, and I'm going to tell you that we are going to have a bike that a man pedals and grinds the beans and then makes fresh coffee right for you as you walk in. Yes, it's the coolest thing you've ever heard, and it's going to be here on Easter. So if you want to participate, 5 p.m., bring your friends. It's called Coffee Hub. Look it up on Yelp. Not now, later. Um, check it out. It's going to, he's going to be here, and he's going to be serving coffee ground through his legs all night long. It's going to be wonderful. And uh, the other thing I want to encourage in you is that, as Tommy said earlier in the service, if you want to text in, I've actually put extensive sermon notes in that text in number. You text hi to the number 305-930-7006. It's in your worship program. And not only are there notes and ways to engage in the prison ministry, you can get the Spotify playlist, but also every week we're putting in a surprise Sunday link. Some of you know that this is there. Some of you don't know because you just are anti-establishment and you don't want to text in. But there is a surprise link in there to uh, a really insightful article that I think everybody will enjoy. So I want to encourage you to do that. So tonight we are uh, actually getting near the tail end of our series. We have three more sermons, uh, finishing this series, Losing Our Religion, on Easter Sunday. And we're in the second half of chapter 4 tonight as we've been moving our way through verse by verse, word by word, all the way through the text here. And we're going to be reading through that tonight as we work through the sermon. But one of the things that's interesting about this sermon and this section here in Galatians is that Paul is pairing things against each other. He's pairing the gospel versus religion and he's establishing a new pairing tonight as well. You know, we're people that love verses. We love this versus that. We love to watch, many of you know, you go on YouTube, you watch conservative debates versus liberal debates. We want to see the arguments. We love the idea of, you know, saying who's better, Amazon or the world. You know, we want to see who's better between those two, Burger King or McDonald's. If you like Burger King, it makes no sense to me. Netflix versus Hulu right? Which one's better? Obviously, Netflix. Starbucks versus Passion. Anything but Starbucks. Some of you are like, whoa, now you're getting, I'm Gold Star member. You know, we, we pair things against each other, and I'm sure we could divide the room right now. We could have a fun debate between different things, but that would take all night as you'd be arguing your positions on different sides of the coin. But I want to do something fun. I want to ask you instead, we're not going to debate, but I want you to raise your hand what side of the coin you fall on in these pairings. So raise your hand if you're an Apple person. Raise your hand if you're an iPhone, Apple person. Now, raise your hand if you're anti-Apple, so you're Samsung, or some other Android device. All right, Apple's one in that one. Okay, here we go. Raise your hand if you think Michael Jordan is the best basketball player of all time. Now, raise your hand if you think it's LeBron James. That's pretty even. The Re- LeBron people are wrong, because he left Miami. Raise your hand if you are a Marvel person. Marvel superheroes, Marvel movies. Now, anyone in here like DC? I like DC. It's like four of us. You know, Batman, that's what we got. Okay, here's the most contentious. Raise your hand if you're a dog person. Now, raise your hand if you're a cat person. Wait, I thought there would be more. Some of you are hiding. Some of you are hiding. I know it. This is the one. I I used to make jokes about cats, and I can't do it anymore because there's a lot of cat people. And I know some of you out here are keeping your hands down. We love that, right? We love the debates. We we watch them online. We, uh, you know, we're interested in seeing which side is better and who wins the argument. And we have all these opinions, whether you're an Apple person or whether you're an Amazon person or a Netflix or a Hulu or a dog person or a cat person. Uh, We like that debate and we like that positioning. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is taking two things and he's combining them together for you to see the the contrast. He wants you to see the gospel, the good news of faith in Jesus Christ is how the grace of God and the love of God actually connects you to who God is. It's through faith alone, through Christ, the gospel versus religion. And last week we saw that he speaks about the law. So the first pairing in the beginning of chapter 4 is that he's putting the gospel versus the law. And when he refers to the law, he's speaking about the commandments in the Old Testament, specifically the Jewish law. So what it meant to uh, kind of honor God's standards by following God's commands. And he begins to kind of tear apart this notion that it's faith plus the law equals salvation and blessing As he puts them together and you can see the contrast that it's clearly the gospel That is the way to relationship and forgiveness and blessing and salvation with God and not the law Now it's important to know that paul is not anti-god's standard He's not anti-ten commandments. He's not anti-god's law But what he wants people to see, the church to see, is that when you put them together, you recognize where the law is supposed to fall, which is the law is good. It's God's standard. It's his design for flourishing. But the problem that we have, which is what Paul is saying to the church, is that we make something that is meant to be a mirror, a guide. And the law can only become a guide when it's first a mirror. So what he wants the church to see and us to see is that the law is a good thing. We should seek to follow God's law. We should seek to say, God, how have you designed me? What does flourishing look like? What is right and wrong according to your standards? I'm going to seek to to follow that as a guide, but only after the law has been a mirror to you, meaning you've looked at it and you've said, "I, I can't uphold this myself. I cannot perfectly follow this. Jesus speaks about this a lot when he says, it's not only murder to kill somebody, but to hate someone in your heart, right? To have anger is equivalent to murder. He makes the law this mirror. So when you look at yourself, you realize that you've broken God's standard, which is perfection. And last week he said that's why Jesus was born under the law so that he might fulfill it perfectly for imperfect people that can't follow it perfectly as our guide. So we look at the law as a mirror so that we can see that we need Christ. Before we need God's law as a guide in our life to guide our behavior and our actions, we need to see Christ first who fulfilled it perfectly for us. And so... He's unpacking that at the beginning of chapter 4, and now he transitions to something interesting. He goes from the law, the Ten Commandments, the the biblical standards of God, because there were the Judaizers that were telling people in the church of Galatia that it's great to be a Christian. They are Christians as well, but you have to be more Jewish. You have to act Jewish, and you have to follow the law perfectly. And he, he tears that down, but then he says, it's not only the gospel versus the law, but it's the gospel versus paganism the complete opposite of the law. Look what he says here in verses 8 and 9. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He's telling the church here, you've traded one religion for another, as he's going to develop one form of slavery for another. He uses this word, if you were here last week, you remember him saying in the very beginning of chapter four, the elementary principles of the world. This is a phrase that Paul is using. He's used it twice in this chapter, but he's, he means two different things with one phrase. The first time he says, the elementary principles of the world, he means the law, the Ten Commandments, and they're trying to be religious by following this code of conduct for God to love them and bless them. But now he uses the same phrase to mean paganism, because the, the church um, in Galatia that he's writing to, the majority of them are Gentiles, non-Jews, and they're pagans. That's was how they were born and raised in what they believed until they came to believe the gospel. Now, it's important as we define paganism, so we know what we're speaking about here. So what is a pagan? It sounds like a horrible word, sounds terrible, but what paganism is, it's really one of two things. It's either polytheism, so it's the belief in multiple gods is defined as paganism. You believe that there's many, many gods. And typically, uh, if you're a polytheist, you believe that there's gods that interact with nature and the way that the things that you experience in life. So you have gods of lightning, you have gods of fertility, you have gods of wine, you have got the gods of earth, wind, fire, heart, go planet, we're the planeteers, you can be one too. You know, all of those things, some of you don't know what that is. That's Captain Planet back in the day. So you have gods of of nature and elements and experiences. That's polytheism, worship of multiple gods. But then you have pantheism. And pantheism is also defined as paganism. To, To be a pagan is to be a pantheist, which is that God is in everything. God is in you. You are God. That reality is actually divinity. That to be alive and To have a, a conscious mind is to be divine now this form of paganism is a form of paganism in our culture pantheism god is in everything there's this universal energy universal source you tap into you kind of recognize your divinity as you uncover it through certain practices now most pantheists would not want to be described as pagans because we don't like labels and because it sounds like a horrible word, like pagan sounds real bad. But this is what the New Age movement is. This is what the New Age movement believes. It's, it's pantheistic mostly, which is that God is in everything. You are God and you can kind of recognize your divinity through kind of becoming aware of your, your consciousness and, and finding out who you are through certain practices and channeling it, and that what you need to do is you need to kind of tap into the universal purpose of man, universal purpose of humankind, and here, through all these different methods, you'll find out who you are, and you'll discover meaning, and you'll grow in positive thinking, and behavior, and blessings will come to your life because you're essentially growing God and divinity in yourself because God's in everything. So some of these practices would be meditation and yoga and crystals and channeling and reiki, which is palm healing. Many, many different forms of pantheism in our culture that's widely accepted and widely practiced. And I'm sure many in this room were influenced by this, this idea. You wouldn't necessarily say I'm God, but maybe you would. But kind of bringing out divinity in yourself through certain practices, because God is kind of in everything, and you're trying to tap into something in yourself to bring about blessings and positivity and, and flourishing in your life. See, what's interesting about paganism, whether you're a polytheist and you believe in many, many gods, or you're a pantheist and you believe that God is in everything, is that there's a common lifestyle attached to it. And the common lifestyle is that you, as a person, need to delight in yourself. The goal of life and really what it means to love yourself is to delight in yourself and to, to follow the sensual passions that you feel, that whatever you're feeling emotionally, you should run after it. You should tap into it. You should explore it. And, and the kind of increase of material goods will help you on that pursuit. You see, it's an attractive thing to think. And Paul is saying here to these pagans who are both polytheists and pantheist that was kind of their upbringing you're now identifying as a christian and but your problem is is that you've traded one elementary principle of the world which is paganism for another which is the law and the reason that he's connecting these two by one phrase is because he wants the church, regardless of where you come to this text. Maybe you identify as having some, some pantheistic thoughts and beliefs, and, and you want to. You, some of that is motivating your spiritual journey. Maybe you're a polytheist and you believe that there's many gods, many maybe many ways to God through different gods, like the mountaintop theory. Or maybe you struggle with being overtly religious. You think that by following the Ten Commandments and, you know, having this checklist of of religious behavior because you were raised in a church that told you that, that one of these paths you're going to kind of get to God and and find salvation and blessing and flourishing and, and positivity and all the things you want in life. And here's what Paul wants to say by comparing the gospel to both sides of the coin. We are all religious. All of us. Some of us would say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, but we're all religious. Because regardless of where you fall, whether you're influenced by the law or you're influenced by karma or you believe that God is in everything or you're influenced by what other people think of you and so you have certain standards that you try to achieve so that other people see that you're good, so therefore God will see you're good because other people do as well. Whatever it is, we're religious because we have a worldview that is defined by a set of rules and doctrine that we believe is good. All of us here, we have a a doctrine that uh, underpins our life, a set of rules that we kind of live by, whether they're spoken or not. And we believe that these rules and this doctrine is good. And we believe that there's a path that is connected to these rules. And if we follow this path, we're going to find meaning. It's literally going to save our life. So we're religious people that think that our religious practices will save us. And what's interesting as Paul compares these two, regardless of where you fall and kind of where your heart bends to the law or paganism, they both have something in common. It's that they focus on your immediate experience. Whether you read the Bible and you have the list and you have the note cards and you know exactly what you're supposed to do and you feel like anytime you break a commandment that God is somehow judging you and you really struggle with being religious in that way or you struggle with being religious by believing that it's all about you and you are God and you need to kind of achieve divinity through reality and and bringing your consciousness into here and through these different practices, whatever it is, it's both religion and it's focused on you. It's focused on what you need to do and what you need to accomplish to better your life, to perform better, to increase, to make yourself feel better about your relationship with God by how you behave, by what you practice, by what you do. And Paul here writes to this church, and I think it's timely for us too, because all of us here are influenced by these different sides of the coin. And he's saying, what you're doing is you're trading one religion for another. So if you grew up in the church and you grew up kind of being religious by following the code of conduct, but now you're kind of trading it for this kind of new age thought, you're trading one religion for another. Or maybe you grew up with no association with God and you were influenced by more new age thought and now you've come to faith in Christ but you're, you're allowing the law to kind of become a guide instead of a mirror in your life and you feel like you're disappointing God and God, God's not going to bless you if you don't perform for him. You're trading one religion for another. and He says that by this phrase. He says, slaves, you want to be once more. You were slaves before when you were pagans, and now you're enslaving yourself again to the law. It's really interesting when we look at slavery in the New Testament, and it's important to kind of share the difference between what we associate with slavery and what was the case in the New Testament times. You see, American slavery is very different from slavery that we find uh, in the time period that Paul is writing this letter. American slavery is race-based, and it is where the slave is the property of the master. They have, the slave has no legal rights, really treated subhuman. It's one of the most evil and abhorrent institutions in the history of the world, the slavery system here in America. Unreal in its horror. Now, I want to say this is very important. Slavery in any form... Is against God's creation and his intention for human beings and flourishing. But it is important to understand something, and that is that every culture in the history of the world, every country, every place, every civilization has had slavery. But it's looked different from American slavery. You see, here in this time, every culture in the known world had slaves, and the Roman culture was no different. The Greco-Roman world was no different, but it was a different form of slavery. Still, not God's intention or His design. But it was different. You see, it wasn't race-based; it was economic and circumstantially based. And slaves actually had uh, rights and social status. Typically, what happened, though, there was slavery through conquest. The Roman Empire would conquer a new land, and they would take slaves and. But those slaves even would have an opportunity to gain their freedom in their life. But the majority of slavery looked like this. It was someone who had a debt they could not pay. They couldn't find a job, and they needed work. And so, because of their economic situation, the circumstances of their life, they would sell themselves into slavery to a master. And they would perform a job, and they would get paid and typically, especially in the Jewish society, after seven years, there would be the opportunity for the slave to gain their freedom and to take their money and their possessions they've accumulated over that time with them to start their own business. In fact, many of them would gain their freedom after seven years, they start their own business, and then they would get slaves. It was kind of how the economy works. Still not God's design or his intention, but this is the world of slavery in the Greco-Roman world that Paul is writing about. They had social status. They had legal rights. Many slaves were doctors and scholars and teachers and farmers. And the reason I share this difference between American slavery and the slavery of the Roman world that Paul is associating this text to is because it tells you something about what he's saying. You see, he's saying that they're trading one religion for another. They're trading paganism for the following of the Jewish law and customs. And he's saying you're enslaving yourself, meaning you are of your own volition selling yourself to something that is promising you false hope and is not God's intention or his design because it's promising things that it could never deliver on. It's promising a false hope. You see, he said earlier in chapter 4 that you're not created to be a slave but he said that you're a son or a daughter adopted into the family of God you're not a slave not a slave to fear you're a son and a daughter adopted into God's family actually in heir with Christ That's what he said in in verse 7 and now he says you are selling yourself again into slavery and this is not God's intention and his design for you but we are people that do that right when you resonate with that I resonate with that I listen to the promises of culture I listen to what's told to me that's going to make me free that's going to better my life that's going to make me perform better at work and increase the depth of my relationships I get sucked into that maybe that's right Maybe I do need to begin to to think like this and behave like this and kind of devote my time to this. And it's enslaving. And what's even worse is that what happens when we begin to sell ourselves to something that's not the gospel, it becomes attractive. We kind of go deeper and deeper and deeper in our Slavery that of our own volition we've given ourselves to, though it's not God's design or intention, we believe the false hopes and the promises. And it's become so attractive that now when truth is given to us, truth becomes unsavory and unattractive, and we resist it. So, this is exactly what happens here. They've traded one religion to another, they have sold themselves into another form of slavery slavery of their mind, and slavery of their heart, not in the connection with Christ and viewing the gospel as the good news, but they've decided this is better news for them. And it's made the truth of Jesus unattractive to them. Look what Paul says here in verse 13. He says, "You you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So when Paul first came to Galatia, he was sick really sick, and most scholars believe that maybe he had malaria because the the towns in the region of Galatia, modern-day Turkey, were up on hills, and you would come from the marshland, and malaria was very prevalent. They had no medication to fight it, so you just had to kind of suffer through it. So he comes very, very sick, but he says in verse 13, though my condition was a trial for you, did not scorn or despise me but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. He comes very sick, very weak, nothing to offer, but they cared for him, and they loved him, and they listened to him as he preached the gospel to them. He said that you treated me like an angel. You treated me like Christ himself. I mean, your love was so unbelievable. But something changed. He says, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is how deeply connected we were, the love that you showed me. You would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me if it was necessary. But now, in verse 16, I have then become your enemy by telling you the truth. I'm beginning to tell you the truth that you've traded one religion to another, that you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and you came to hear the good news of the gospel that gave you freedom in Christ, that by faith you are loved and blessings are promised to you, not because of anything you've earned or deserved, but because of what Christ has done for you. He was born under the law and he fulfilled it perfectly because we can't. And now you have sold yourself to religion again. And I'm telling you, you're distorting the gospel and you are treating me like an enemy because you've made the slavery of your heart and your mind that you sold yourself to more attractive than Jesus. It's challenging. You know, truth is always pointing you to something. Many of you know my story that when I uh, came to faith and I was exploring faith, I started to explore if it was true. And so, you know, I changed my major in college, started to pursue religion, and I investigated all the other major religions because I wanted to see if the Christian faith was in fact true. And through that pursuit of truth, of looking out beyond myself, God pointed me to Christ and revealed to me and solidified in my heart and my mind that the gospel is the truth of who God is and who we are in Christ. You see, as I pursued truth, it didn't point me to myself. It pointed me to Christ. But religion has the opposite effect. Regardless of its form, religion wants to point you to itself. It wants to point you out, it wants to point you in. It's a great quote by Gerald Mays, an American psychiatrist and theologian. He said this, Even religion, the one timeless gate to, the, to beyond the self, becomes technique. A means to an end for self-improvement. To create better behavior, to make more abiding happiness, to manufacture holiness. There are times when, through religion, one comes close to turning over self-control, offering it up, giving it up, sacrificing the delusion, but even then, most often, it becomes the turning over of a defective self to the ultimate fixer in the sky in hopes of getting a rebuilt and perfected self in return. This is not going beyond self, nor is it giving up. It's using God to help one get back in control. See, that's what religion does, is it doesn't point you to Christ, it points you to yourself because it wants to build a camp of loyalty around. Whatever the doctrine is, whatever the thought is, it's pointing you at yourself. Try this, try that, do this, do that. Take control of your life, figure out what your truth is and follow it. Point you at yourself instead of at Christ. And that's why it's attractive, (laughs) right? This is why religion, whether we label it spirituality or we identify as just being religious, is attractive because it's all about us and our control, the practices that we can engage in and how we can better our life now. Look what Paul says about religion in verse 17. He's speaking about it. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. See, all this talk that they've been influenced by, they needed to trade paganism for now the Jewish law. He's saying both forms, are, they're making much of you, telling you a lot about yourself. Yes, you're, you're the best and you can do it and you can accomplish it. Just try this and try that and do this and do that and you can better your life and everything's going to go great. But religion has no concern for you only has concern for itself you're expendable but we don't feel that way because it's calling us to look at ourselves and control our own life and we feel good when we're in control it's interesting and you may think this is a little weird but that's precisely the tactic of satan don't look at christ look at yourself don't look at what christ says the good news faith in God, and you don't have to earn it, deserve it, you're free, you're adopted as a son and daughter. No, you got to earn something. What do you have to do? What's your next step? What's your next practice to engage in? There's a challenge that Paul is giving here, and it's a challenge of authenticity. The question of, am I being pointed to truth, or am I being pointed to to myself. It's a question to really wrestle through because God's intention for you is to find truth in him, in Christ. Not to look at yourself, but to look at him. And Paul, as he's writing this to the church, he's in anguish because they've traded one religion for another, one form of slavery of the heart and mind for another. Look what he writes. It's a little disturbing. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's a little weird, but here's what he's saying. It feels like you haven't had a new birth yet. It feels like I'm still pregnant. That's what he's saying. Christ has not been formed in you yet. And I am in anguish of childbirth because you have not been formed in Christ yet. You can see his pain. And the challenge here, as I said, is a challenge of authenticity. Who are you really? And what do you believe? Do you believe these false hopes of religion? Do you believe the good news of the gospel in Christ? Now, we love authenticity. It's a big word. It's a buzzword because we love the idea of choosing who we want to be and then living out our authentic self. Finding your truth and then following it. And this is why I think a lot of people have a hard time with Christianity. And maybe you're there. Because Christianity tells you to look away from yourself and to look to Christ. It feels kind of narrow. It feels a little bit uncomfortable. And it makes sense that it does because we live in a cultural regime that doesn't preach that message. It preaches a message to look at yourself, delight in yourself, follow your pleasures. Sounds a lot like paganism. You see, Christianity says this, who you are is found in Christ. Our culture says, who you are is found in whoever you choose to be. Christianity says that you choose Christ to discover who you truly are. When you choose Christ, everything gets undone. It's a new birth. And our culture says, Choose whatever emotion or feeling that is dominating your mind in the moment and follow that as your truth. Whatever you feel is dominating you and you can change it. Follow that. You see, one of these messages is good news and one of them is religion. One of them provides freedom and one of them provides slavery. And the challenge that Paul is leaving to the church and to us is who are you? Are you a son or a daughter of God, adopted through Christ, received into God's family, given salvation and blessing simply through faith in Christ, nothing that you have earned or deserve? Is that your identity? Is that who you are? Or do you recognize just simply as an individual that's following your emotions wherever they may lead and following after your truth? It may sound good, but it's enslaving. And the challenge here is to be authentic, to choose Christ and lose your religion because that's where freedom is found. That's where joy is found. That's where hope is found, is in looking to Christ who is true. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that we we don't have to strive, though we try a lot. Lord, we don't have to run for our blessing and for our salvation, but we get seduced by that idea. God, we can relinquish control and trust that you are in control, but God, we cling to control. Lord, that we can be free in the good news of the gospel, that you don't call us to be religious. You've already called us to be a son and a daughter. We just operate in our new identity and yet we run to religion. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, make known to us those lies that we believe that are calling us to look at ourselves and not look at you, Christ. Lord, that if anyone is here and they're they're struggling with that, they're on this spiritual journey and they're having that battle between the gospel and religion or really the gospel in themselves that you would reveal christ to them right now even in this moment that they would see the beauty and the freedom that comes through the understanding that christ was a savior who lived the perfect life under the law that we couldn't and he died for our sins on the cross was buried and came forth alive victorious on the third day as we'll celebrate in two weeks on easter or we come before you now vulnerable and asking that you would heal us, that you would move in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.